Welcome to this week's BJSM podcast, where you will hear from Dr. Anna Saul. Anna has been in demand since completing her PhD on the question of how to assess training response in athletes. How can you tell if a player is near breaking point? The sound file comes from Dr. Andy Franklin Miller's very popular podcast series, and you can find a link to them on the podcast blurb and on our social media podcast. Here is Dr. Franklin Miller with Dr. Anna Saw. I suspect there'll be two schools of thought on this paper, though, um, in sports science. Uh, one that absolutely hate it because it provides some evidence away from um, the mass collection of multiple salivary and hematological factors. Um, but another who really like it because actually it reinforces an awful lot of the, the things a lot of people do on a day-to-day basis who maybe work with either non-professional Olympic teams or teams with less money. Um, and so before we, we talk about the paper itself, I guess it was your own background that raised the research hypothesis. Uh, yes, yeah, so I guess the literature, had, there, there was some suggestion of the, these findings in previous sort of narrative reviews that these subjective measures do seem to be promising, whereas the objective measures seem to be um, here and there. Some, sometimes they were useful and sometimes they weren't. And so with my PhD, I was starting to um, read more and more papers about this, and I started to see see these trends as well. Um, but there's, there was, I guess there was a gap in the literature. That, um, as you mentioned, these measures are so widely used. There's even now a commercial market for athlete monitoring software. Um, but the science behind them yet wasn't quite there. So saw this gap and saw the opportunity to synthesize all the literature out there. They were widely used in the literature, but actually pulling that all together and going, okay, what do we actually see with these measures? How are they actually responding? Um, is there evidence for them? Sure. And it, actually, it's a pretty big task for those people who haven't read the paper yet. Actually, the magnitude of this is actually quite a big, uh, a big challenge because there are so many of these measures and trying to actually look at the relationship between them is an is a impressive um, piece of work. For, for those people who haven't yet read the paper... Can you just describe to the listener the differences between a subjective and an objective marker? And maybe let's talk a couple about a couple of them. Sure. So what I'm talking about when I say subjective measures, it's in some ways asking what the athlete is perceiving. So how are they feeling physically? um, How is their mood or stress levels or so forth? So they can, any of those measures are reported in a self-report measure, which might be a diary or a questionnaire or an online log or something. So that's what I'm talking about when I say subjective measures. Um, but they are they also are, are limited by, I guess, how the athlete interprets the question, um, perhaps some deliberate bias in there, and also just their ability to recall their information, which we need to keep in mind. Um, when I'm talking about objective measures, they're typically things like your blood or urine marks, salivary markers, heart rate, heart rate um, performance, they're not susceptible to human bias, but they have their own limitations in, I guess, practicality is also the validity and reliability. Sure. And, and in that, um, because the way that the evidence was presented in these papers, um, you found over 4,000 papers in your initial um, search and you brought this down to um, 56 papers uh, in the systematic review after excluding those that either didn't meet the criteria or, in fact, actually were on, on separate topics. Um, you went to some good lengths, actually, to look at the strength of that evidence um, and the uh, risk of bias. Do you want to just talk us through how you went about that process? 
Sure. So each study went through um, five criteria for risk of bias. Um, some of the standard things like were they peer reviewed, how many participants did they involve, um, and then how well did they define their population, how well did they characterise the training that the athletes were undergoing, and also to do with the self-report measure themselves, how well did they describe um, the self-report measure they were using. So I had, had a scoring system for that. And then within each of the studies, I also had um, scoring systems to quantify, well, not so much quantify it because um, I guess it was limited with all the heterogeneity of data, but characterise um, the changes. Was it a small, moderate, large change? Was the training stimulus normal or moderate or high and so forth? So each of those had certain criteria which I characterised every study by and then that there were all those scores were sort of added up and synthesised into um, the results you see in the paper. For sure. And, and you did some nice work in terms of trying to get an idea of the sensitivity of response using a sort of a weighting factor. Where did that weighting factor come from? Uh, so the weighting factor is a combination of the magnitude of the training stimulus. So, so whether that was just normal training was it moderate training stimulus, such as the athlete was exposed to an overload or a taper, or was it quite a high training stimulus, um, which was generally like a shock training load, which we no normally wouldn't see in practice, but some studies would say double the training load to deliberately elicit um, perhaps non-functional overreaching in the athletes. So it characterised um, the magnitude of the stimulus and then also characterised the magnitude of the change of the measures. Sure. Um, based on p-values or effect sizes, and then um, combine those two to work out a sensitivity. And you found some interesting things in the papers that were included. Um, the relationship between the subjective measures um, differed slightly in terms of acute and chronic training load. Do you want to just talk us through some of the findings in terms of the subjective um, uh, patient-reported outcome or most measures? Yes, yeah, so within the subjective measures, what we we were starting to see quite consistent responses, regardless of whether we're looking at mood, stress, um, symptoms of stress. Across the many different measures we're looking at, they all responded, I guess, in the same way or didn't didn't change. So with an acute increase in training, so typically for an overload, um, subjective well-being was impaired. So the athlete was feel, feeling worse physically and psychosocially. Then when the training load was reduced, so for a taper, then those um, subjective well-being would generally restore, so you get an increase in perceived well-being. Whereas for the chronic training load, so generally we're talking over the course of a season, um, subjective well-being tended to get impaired over the course, course of the season, so it might be that cumulative training load, the athlete not quite recovering. Um, so we certainly were seeing consistent responses there, though that one is a little bit... Um, more questionable because we guess we need to think about what was actually happening across the course of the season for these athletes and how well was their training managed. We we don't know that from the studies. Sure, and you did identify some subscales in some of the scores that actually were less responsive in terms of depression and emotional stress. Yeah, yeah. So I guess that's a key find as well as identifying what were useful. Actually, it's important to I think about well, what subscales weren't, and I th depression is certainly one which is surprising because. It's one that's commonly associated with the overtraining syndrome, um, very similar signs and symptoms to clinical depression. Um, and perhaps maybe that might be just the fact that the studies didn't include athletes who actually had 
characteristics of overtraining syndrome. So it still might be worth including that measure if you wanted to get a measure of the ultimate outcome. Sure. If and an I, athlete was responding negatively. And I think actually that's an interesting point you raise is that um, it, this, this review is very difficult to put together because of the heterogeneity of not only the, the measures themselves, but also the actual studies that, that address it. So um, one of the things that really struck me was what would have been lovely, but virtually impossible, um, would have been to um, have some quantification of each study in terms of the actual training stimulus. So to get an idea of actually what the, the subjects were undergoing, because of course, um, there's an enormous difference between running a singular marathon for, let, for let's say, and then running marathon de sables or, or um, repeated ultramarathons, um, compared to looking at changes across the season in rugby league or, or otherwise. So, so I think whilst impossible to design such a review, um, I think you're absolutely right to identify that um, the, the stimulus for which these markers is applied is very variable. Mm, absolutely, yeah. Um, so um, looking at the endocrine measures, um, a lot of popularity in the literature, particularly testosterone-cortisol ratio or epitestosterone nor, nor adrenaline, um, you looked at a wide range, found, actually found that they were pretty broadly used. Do you want to talk a little bit about the relationship between those endocrine markers and the self-reported measures? Yeah, so o overall, considering the results together, we didn't find any association um, between the subject and measures and the endocrine markers, or in some cases, some conflicting findings. Um, the only one exception to this was we found a moderate negative association between stress and cortisol. So that means that in 50 to 75% of the studies, um, either stress went up and cortisol went down, or stress went down and cortisol went up. And so this contradicts what we'd normally expect with cortisol being associated as a stress hormone. Um, it's probably something I can't really explain, um, given the contrasting responses to training, um, perhaps just it's an anomaly there. So I guess the overall message is that they weren't dissociated. Which is, which is a challenge really for the literature that, that has tried to hang its hat on um, a number of these measures, particularly in, in uh, field sports and multi-directional sports. Yeah, absolutely. Perhaps... Um, people may start reconsidering um, current testing and how they're allocating their resources to this. Yeah. For sure. And look, and where they may, those measures um, commonly really, I guess, are used to, to measure response to training stimulus and much less so to address the range of um, uh, symptoms and profile of unexplained underperformance syndrome. If we move on to uh, the immune system and the salivary enzymes, um, these traditionally, there's a fair bit of work being done on the on those measures, salivary IgA, etc., um, in order to look at the longer term effects of um, overtraining, um, particularly in terms of mapping the recovery or or looking for increased incidence of, of upper respiratory effects. And obviously, Marie Gleason up in uh, uh, Australia has done some significant work on this. But did you find any association in the immune system? Uh, yeah, again, um, some interesting findings there, as you alluded to. So we were we generally found, um, in regards to leukocytes, there was strong evidence of um, no association there, um, whereas there was only a couple of studies in regards to the cytokines to give an across-the-board answer. But generally, we, we weren't seeing any association um, there either. 
Talking about those um, subjective measures, did you find any differences between them? There's obviously a number. POMS is probably the best well-known or DALDA. Um, do you, did you find any one particularly more associated with the, the other factors? Um, yeah, so it wasn't so much about evaluating which self-report measure is best. Um, that wasn't the purpose, but certainly those results, um, you can sort of read into them a little bit. And the recovery stress questionnaire um, see, seemed to be the best. It was responsive to both those acute and chronic changes in training load um, across both stress and recovery measures. Um, another promising one um, might be uh, the multi-component training distress scale. There weren't many studies to actually include in this review, but it's starting to, it's general in a sense that includes things like mood, um, perceived stress, um, symptoms of stress and behavioural symptoms. So it's quite broad, but it includes only 22 questions as opposed to the 76 in the rescue. So I also think there might be some potential in that one there as being across the board because we want to capture the different responses of individual athletes. Not all of them are going to respond in the same way. So keeping it as broad as possible but reducing the number of questions I think might be where it's going. For sure and of course you know those of us who work with teams um, will know that actually a 70 plus um, point scale is going to be very difficult to have accurately and reliably but also frequently uh, measured and of course one of the things that you do hint at here is that um, all of these measures on their own are really of no use at all, but actually it's the regular monitoring of them which may well lead you to find trends. And so these are not snapshot, um, snapshot assessments. They, uh, it's the, the trend and the changes in the direction of that trend which will um, lead to a clinical, potentially, or performance benefit. Um, looking back at your results, you found a moderate association between some of those rescue um, subscales and creatine kinase. We consider creatine kinase as a marker of muscle damage. So what, we're seeing that association in the acute increase and decrease in training load. So overload and athletes got an unaccustomed training stimulus, they're going to have more muscle damage. So it makes sense that the creatine kinase is increasing and their subjective well-being is going down with that overload and then both of them recover with that decreased training stimulus. But why we didn't actually see them being associated overall, creatine kinase and subjective measures, was when we were considered the, the longer-term um, training stimulus, so the chronic training load, where creatine kinase um, wasn't responsive um, because the athlete is accustomed to that exercise, they're not getting that same sort of creatine kinase response. Sure. Um, and one of the other things that you identified, which I think was very reassuring, was actually there was a relationship between the POMS questionnaire and VO2 max. Yeah. Um, again, it might be, depends how we're going to read into it. There's a few different ways we can consider this. Perhaps that an athlete's um, mood disturbance might indicate how prepared they are to perform a VO2 max test, perform maximally, um, or perhaps may indicate how willing they are to actually push themselves to get a true VO2 max as well because um, we know that psychological state um, does influence an athlete's performance as well. So, um, yeah, it's good to see that association, but we need to not quite sure which way to read into it at this stage. Sure, and I think that's actually a very valid point. I hadn't really considered it. I, I, the, the, the easy take-home message there is that actually it sort of reinforces POMS as a use of, um, of training load. Um, but actually, if you look at it at the other reverse way around, as you've just done, I think actually, yes, you're right, it throws almost more doubt into the, into the equation. 
I'm not saying that a POMS is going to be able to be a substitute for performance capacity. Um, it might just indicate their readiness or preparedness to actually perf perform instead of their capacity. For sure. And um, you make a statement, and the BJSM are very good at this in terms of asking you to provide pull-out um, features in terms of what the study adds and what it, it doesn't, um, which, which I'll challenge you on in the sense that you say uh, the lack of association between subjective and objective measures provides support for the inclusion of both um, in athlete monitoring roles. It, it, it sounds like a great justification for lots of lab support um, services to, to elite athletes. I'm guessing that's not what you mean. Uh, no, not directly. So I guess the basis of this suggestion is that subjective measures and objective measures, are, they're not measuring the same thing. So we showed that subjective measures were useful for monitoring the training response. And so they're something that could be used on a daily to weekly basis. Um, whereas the objective measures were shown to be not that useful for monitoring the training response but they may still be useful for evaluating certain aspects of an athlete's health or their ability, for instance, using blood markers to identify medical conditions um, such as iron deficiency or infection. Or in, of course, performance tests will still have a role for evaluating performance capacity of an athlete. For sure. And of course, um, I, I guess what I'm getting at here is that, that that statement isn't suggesting the sort of ongoing mass measuring of salivary and, and hematological enzymes as a means of uh, assessing response to training um, based on the information in this review. Yeah, correct. It's not saying that we need to use a battery of both, uh, but there is still a place for objective measures. So it's never, never my intention to um, counter the role of objective measures, but perhaps we need to use them more strategically rather than using them routinely. We need to actually consider when they are warranted and less frequently. For sure. And, and I guess this is, the, as you say, the, the tier of study for your, um, for your PhD. Um, do you want to just give us a hint at where your thesis took you in terms of the, uh, the self-reported measures? Sure. So I um, started with some qualitative uh, research, just finding out what was actually happening, how were they already being um, used and then I took that into a long-term study with a diverse range of athletes to extend upon those. So first up we had the implementation of these measures. So of course we know that they're being widely used but at the moment the problem is that we're not getting the quality data because the athletes just don't want to do it or they're not being honest in their responses. So before we can take the longer term steps of analysing this data and getting whatever insight we may get in the future, first up we need to actually implement these measures properly. So identified factors which, um, which any sports setting can address to hopefully improve the quality of that data, whether it's looking at the measure but also the social environment that surrounds that implementation. So there, there was two studies um, there that looked at different sports settings and contexts and then um, looking at what role do these self-report measures actually play um, in the day-to-day. -day. So um, how the um, coaches and support staff were actually using it as a way to communicate with the athletes, find out more about um, the athletes and the athletes could also be a bit more open and honest um, through these measures. And also using it to guide day-to-day -day training and also longer-term um, long insight, I guess, for future program planning. And there's one more final study, which is quite exciting, but it hasn't quite been published yet. And that's looking at how it, how it may 
help athletes themselves, so independent of any um, support from a coach or support scientist, um, how does it actually help the athletes monitor them, themselves? For sure. And look, I, that'll be fascinating information in terms of the, the actual application of this because it, it's fine um, to put these studies into abstract, but actually it's the practical implication that really affects the individual at the end of the day. And that's the one thing I guess we're all that are working within um, that athletic support field uh, interested in. Um, look, Anna, we might wrap it up there. That's It's been fantastic to talk to you. I, um, is there anything that you think we haven't covered that the, the systematic review set out to address? The main outcome is that it reaffirms current practices. These measures are already widely used. It, it provides a justification for that, strengthens um, that use, hopefully. And perhaps, I guess, a side um, finding of this with the lack of response of the objective measures, maybe sports programs might start to reconsider their resource allocation and perhaps put more into this um, subjective side of things, which seems quite promising. Well, look, thank you very much, Anna, for your time today. Uh, for those of you who have yet to read the paper or indeed the summary, it features in this week's Research Review 112, and I'm sure you will enjoy it thoroughly. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to this BGSM podcast. You can keep in touch via the usual social media outlets and via the BJSM app. Once again, thanks for listening and have a physically active day.